Welcome to the founders of Web3 series by Outlier Ventures and me, your host, Jamie Burke. Together, we're going to meet the entrepreneurs, their backers, and the leading policymakers that are shaping Web3. Together, we're going to try to define what is Web3, explore its nuances, and understand the mission and purpose that drive its founders. If you enjoy what you hear, please do subscribe, rate, and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission that is Web3. Today, I'm really happy to welcome Michael Weber. I said I was going to say it in, in the appropriate accent, or Weber, if I was going to anglicize it. Founder of Dear Data, the Wikipedia for financial data, an open source Oracle platform that allows market actors to supply, share, and use transparent, crowd-verified price data and oracles for a fair and symmetric financial DeFi ecosystem. Welcome, Michael. Jimmy, thank you very much for having me. Thank you very much for setting up this podcast. So maybe as a disclaimer, I know Michael quite well. He went through our accelerator at Outlier Ventures. He was cohort two, um, sorry, cohort one, the, uh, the first one last year. And the last time I saw him was dancing in a Shanghai karaoke bar. If uh, I'll put the link to the video in the iTunes comments, uh, uh, just to embarrass him and and probably me. So we um, about the leverage there, Jamie, on you dancing in this karaoke. Yes, right, exactly. Let's uh, let's quickly move on. So some of the reasons why I wanted to get you on the show. So you are rare in that you're from an institutional finance background prior to coming into to crypto, but you're also a, a Web3 native. You've done a number of ventures now where you've been a founder, building out kind of innovative stuff at, at the edge of the space. And so as the industry is trying to mainstream crypto, I think you've got quite a unique perspective, perhaps a pragmatic approach, but also one better grounded in reality from an institutional mindset. The work that you're doing at DIA, but also a number of other initiatives such as DAPI with the Frankfurt Business School is addressing how to professionalize crypto as an asset class and attract in or encourage in uh, institutional money, many of which would be your kind of ex-colleagues and, and customers to both trade in and build out institutional grade products on top of crypto, uh, which is of course the, the holy grail to making this a trillion dollar market rather than where it is today. And given this background, I'm interested to understand your perspective on this interplay between CFI, centralized finance, and what's now been called DeFi, decentralized finance, how these two worlds collide, whether it's transformative or disruptive. And you know, you are rare in that you've really been bringing in, making success in bringing in a number of major financial institutions into the space in Europe, such as Deutsche Bank, uh, UBS, as well as kind of public and financial backing from both the EU and the Swiss governments. I think there's, there's a definitely a European angle there that I want, I want to touch upon. So uh, to give some context to you and to talk through kind of your origins, you 
originally studied economics and physics at the University of Cologne, which is probably why you're slightly kooky, I would say. Um, the economics bit makes sense, perhaps the physics bit might too. Um, and you went on to do a diploma, a master's in management at ESCP Business School. And then, as I said, you went into kind of financial services industry. So Bloomberg, where you were a global data analyst in 2007, worked at BNP Paribas as a derivative trading desk, 2008, Lehman Brothers and Nomura, where you're an analyst, and then continued there into 2010, 2011, and uh, then on to Bonsum, where you were uh, chief executive. I think that was your first startup, right? in 2014, where you worked on sustainable digital currency called Goodcoin. Could you tell us a little bit about that before we kind of move in, into the stuff? Because that was your first startup, but actually your, your first venture in, in crypto and digital assets. So 2014, roughly when I founded Outlier. So you're one of the first people, certainly in Europe, coming into the space. Thanks for the intro on to also bridge this to Bonsum and the first touch points with DLT in the end, as well as cryptos. I think it's important what was always driving me was a natural interest for numbers in the end. Uh, this first materialized in physics, but also obviously in economics and later the career in finance. What I always liked about numbers, data sets in itself, is the option to measure and actually on top of this measurements to try to analyze the status quo uh, on a basis that is standardized, uh, partially also extremely objective uh, and is always uh, observing reality in a way uh, that you can quantify it in the end with numbers as well as with data. Physics is something I really um, enjoyed diving into, but finance is something where I really saw numbers working and having a fundamental real-life impact, actually, uh, on myself. From uh, some daily spending habits uh, to fees I get on my bank accounts to later now in my life, actually, uh, yeah, interest rates I have to pay on mortgages for my house. This, in the end, is all dependent on measurable data. And, and while I loved the financial angle, the numbers-driven angle, I wasn't too enthusiastic or actually not at all about CFI, uh, that you call it. So the traditional way of doing finance uh, from BNP Paribas derivative trading to investment banking, actually, ventures in London. We can touch on this a bit later and where I also see is the enormous potential uh, for this traditional CPI place. But what really triggered me uh, in the financial space was yeah, diving into blockchain really quite early uh, and developing a first solution with Bonsum that was using blockchain as a settlement and clearing house in the end. And with a particular focus on loyalty points, since these are extremely fragmented systems. If in the UK you actually purchase something at Tesco, Sainsbury's, and a few other stores, you have three to four different cards. Uh, one uh, actually of the chains has a massive amount of fragmented IT infrastructure and different database layers. And this is where I saw a real first life application, uh, actually also blockchain. 
but it also materialized in the angle I have to those technical applications. It's really a compliance-driven angle. So it's one, I think, this also originates here out of my habits in the EU, um, actually my interest for regulations and my touch points. So this early endeavors in cryptocurrencies with Godcoin, what you mentioned, it was always important for me to also see that this is being able to be bridged and also accessible by the, for the traditional mass market. So not an elite digital structure that only a few can actually access, but something discussed with regulatory bodies, with institutional bodies. And 2014, uh, this was really a first discussion with the German regulator, Bafin. There was no way to get through this uh, because even the definition of e-money which is a subsection of cryptocurrencies, wasn't completely clear. And even further, a definition of, uh, yeah, actually crypto assets or loyalty points in the form of a crypto asset. So always like the space. And I think um, my, my drive to use data here, also in this context of DIA, is something that can, in the end, in the long term, really fundamentally shake up finance uh, and the way how we handle and use data nowadays. And so there were a couple of other ventures, you know, quite typical to people that joined the space that early, both, as you say, because of the immaturity of the technology, but then also you know, the regulatory environment. So you did some work in the digitization of insurance claim management, leveraging DLT. There was block state where uh, you looked at smart contract securities, eventually kind of leading you through to uh, DIA, which you founded in January 2017, as I said, uh, which is kind of described as the Wikipedia for financial data. And we'll, we'll kind of get to that a little bit later. So let's first talk about the asset class and the market as you see it today. Obviously, it's evolved a lot since 2014. But what are the structural challenges that exist in the market today? And how would you gauge its maturity? I think in the last years, there was tremendous, um, actually, increase in the ability to scale this up on the tech infrastructure. And this is what we also fundamentally build on, uh, different blockchain solutions to help us also actually roll this out in more applications. Uh, but in terms of the concrete asset class, in particular with my really glasses from the traditional financial space, uh, this is still uh, from a taxonomy, from a classification for the majority seen as a very exotic assets. Even uh, Bitcoin, uh, classical Ethereum's and the biggest market caps are still struggling to find really a harmonized taxonomy and therefore also an uptake into the depots and assets under management of the mass market, not only the big player, but also retail investors out there. And I think one of the key ingredients that is being massively developed, partly neglected, but something that should be focused on, is really this bridge towards compliance and what is actually speaks safety. Um, so if I want to invest actually in, uh, in an asset crucial for me as a retail investor, as an institutional investor, is transparency on the asset I invest in, as well as reliability that this is going to exist and adhere to the rules of the market. And this is something where I really see 
in the last year tremendous uh, increase in this uptake from security tokens that far take this bridge from a traditional crypto asset far into the reach of a normal asset portfolios. First assets very successfully and compliantly actually tokenized, uh, also bridged to this traditional legal setup with prospectuses. And um, with this building up, DeFi, in my view, builds a tremendous opportunity bridge there because it not only opens the gate for crypto assets, but it uses a methodology that could collect more and more different varieties of assets. What I mean is the started off from loans, the first actually tries on derivatives and traditional indices, but has now, in my view, really come to a breaking point where this isn't only a crypto play anymore. Uh, it's about more and more assets wrapped into this DLT layer. And this is what I always found in particularly interesting, not so much a crypto speculation, but a technical layer. So what are the attitudes of the institutions with your old colleagues and customers? The irony of this industry is the information asymmetry, the opacity that exists. How do these institutions look at the asset class right now? For the majority, what I see, it has progressed from being exotic, frightening, to being interesting, to slowly really becoming something that is crucial for a digital strategy. Um, so while a few yeah, years ago to find a traditional institutional that isn't even does uh, custody for crypto assets was a major pain point, this has actually opened up uh, yeah, massively in the last years. And when I talk to those institutional players, going back also to safety as well as transparency, I think this is in particular what they are still struggling with, not so much themselves, but really for a push again to the regulator. So from standardization, something that we tackle with one of the initiatives that you raised earlier, the Frankfurt School of Finance, to actually the safety to being able to forward this to the customers and end investors in a way where they, first of all, understand it completely, and secondly, also can transfer this knowledge and the safety to the end customer. Uh, this is partially still lacking. And um, I think information asymmetry is something that is actually in the benefit of the fintechs and DeFi ecosystem for this moment, because even uh, big institutional banks, uh, some that back us, but even going to tier one investment banks from Goldman, JP, uh, these banks still need to actually hire these competences because they had such a big focus on pure KPI fulfillment on a financial need, but not building up this digital competences. So it has shifted from being curious and interesting about uh, into a tremendous demand actually into the space and vehicles that are compliant and to enable to cross this bridge into the space. So you kind of referenced this uh, initiative, DAPI, that you have with uh, Philip Sanders, who's a good friend of, of Outlier, um, has been doing great work in advocating for the asset class and the innovations that come from DLT from the Frankfurt Business School. Could you talk us through a little bit about that? As I understand it, it's kind of trying to create a framework, a taxonomy, and a kind of standardization around the asset class 
to serve as a, a bridge for centralized finance, traditional finance into this space of DeFi. For this first, um, also two words about DIA and how it references in this context. With what you introduced as the Wikipedia for financial data, what we are building is a radical new model, uh, actually, for the handling of financial data, which touches on DARPI. It's not a silo system. It's not trying to sell API calls. It's not a new Bloomberg terminal. It's a radical approach of answering the question, how did you actually come up with this number with a complete open source process from the sourcing of this data point, how you calculated this number to a historical layer of each and every calculation you made on top of this. Now, saying how did you come up with this numbers in the traditional way requires a lot of reconsolidation of different databases, somebody looking into fragmented data sets. If an existing database uh, or if a database that existed two years ago is not there anymore, it pretty much breaks in the audit trail. Uh, and this is what we saw really as a DLT application in the end, answering this question, how did you come up with this number, with this price for Bitcoin, with uh, this price for a government bond? with an option um, to perfectly trace and source each and every data point that we publish. Completely open source, accessible to any, everybody, with a token actually yeah, fostering the integrity of this. Now, how is this relevant actually to DARPI and uh, also this initiative uh, that in particular talks to regulators on the European level? Regulators are massively struggling in finding a standardized way, a harmonized way, how they can track and trace this wild ecosystem of crypto transactions and also reconcile actually how decisions for pricings, taxonomies, classifications were made. Um, and DAPI is an initiative that is in particular filling this gap. So giving regulators as well as more traditional uh, financial institutions a tool, also an open source tool, where you have a standardized taxonomy and classification model for digital assets, from DeFi digital assets to uh, more exotic DeFi uh, lending or government bonds actually uh, also issued uh, in the form of a digital assets. And what DAPI really provides here And also to say this in this podcast, it's an open initiative that everybody can join where really feedback from a majority of stakeholders is highly appreciated. Um, really bridges this to a regulator, regulatory consensus that we are um, yeah, implementing now for more than one year. Uh, it's a good thing to see regulators are interested in this because it solves a problem for them, a standardized actually tool to track and trace these assets. But again, it also builds a secure tool to actually issue these digital assets and enable uh, this bridge into this EU compliant way. So why is all this happening in Europe? You know, why is this the Frankfurt Business School? Why is DIA data coming out of somewhere like Switzerland? Why all of this within the continent of Europe? Obviously, Switzerland and Europe are separate jurisdictions. They're related, but separate. Why here? Why not? in the US, why not you know, elsewhere in the world? Europe indeed is a unique opportunity and also 
partially a pain um, due to the fragmented landscape for digital assets. Uh, Europe, um, something where I actually spent my career also dealing with these regulations from uh, Basel III, a regulation that is saving our ass now in terms of COVID because banks actually have enough cash and we learned from the last crisis, to extremely rigid regulations like Method 2. Uh, that are sometimes hard to implement, but then again, enable a perfectly efficient, actually, financial market to actually also a very concrete and innovative playing field for players in the digital asset space, in particular in Switzerland, provides, in our view, one of yeah, the most attractive jurisdictions to roll out what we have with DIA here, building this bridge between uh, cryptos and compliance. Uh, Europe has, besides the regulations I mentioned, in particular for the digital asset as well as Oracle space, a regulation that perfectly takes really teachings from CFI uh, to DeFi, uh, and namely benchmark regulations. This is also something where we focused our product uh, development on in the last years because our institutional clients were coming uh, in particular with this problem of actually going back to this question of how do you come up with a concrete answer uh, is a question that is not only applicable for digital assets but also retail market ETFs. To go deep into this, for example, in the corona, actually volatility in equity as well as bond markets, the fluctuation of prices is something that traditional financial models can't that much deal with. From actually stopping trading, which is something which is impossible in DeFi in itself, uh, to actually also manual reconsolidation and backward manipulation of data calculations. This highlighted the need again, how broken uh, and actually labor and manual labor intensive these existing systems are. And now to go back to benchmark regulations again, see, it's in the end also a learning uh, of EU regulations from the, the crisis of the last 100 years to provide an extremely stable and safe pricing methodology for financial assets, from ETFs to derivatives to your pension fund. And these security levels increase the more assets are actually uh, under management. So if we do an exotic deal on some oil trades, we won't need five regulated parties to trade, uh, to calculate the price on this. But if we go into a pension fund and want to allocate this money, we would need to have under EU regulations three to five different data sources because a consensus of one or two major players pushing this data into this price feed simply isn't safe enough. Just to drop Lidewa here on the side note is a major example of how 20 key players can actually reach a consensus to manipulate the whole market. But all of these problems, the euro area has actually answers for all of these problems. And they developed this in a painful consensus mechanisms in the last years. And something also for us as a fintech company, it's not always easy to tackle this environment, but it provides tremendous opportunities. And Switzerland itself is also a special case itself government tokens, utilities. It's a reason why a majority of blockchain protocols from 2014 are located in Switzerland. 
The direct coordination with the regulator enabled also us to build our company there, but now going also in a more crucial inclusion of our token into governance, specific right allocations of these tokens, we are actually able to talk to the regulator and get an explicit answer for us here. Something if I look at the United States with government tokens or even the question for a Bitcoin ETF that we have here since six years and they are still struggling to actually implement the first one is something uh, where the EU provides our home ground, our home playing ground and in our view, also really innovative ecosystem and there uh, we foster our product and focus our development. So we keep talking about CFI and DeFi, and it's probably good to make a distinction. Like where do we draw the line? What is CFI? What is DeFi? How do they interact? What is the interplay? Is DeFi disruptive to CFI? Is it transformative? How can they coexist? If they can coexist, is also a question I'm asking myself a lot in recent years. To go maybe in the last, in the, in the recent example of uh, loans uh, as well as yield generation, uh, and to put their CFI and DeFi a bit into this perspective. Let's take CFI um, and getting actually a mortgage or a loan from your bank. You need to go there. You need to get probably completely naked from your salary statements to personal income statements to further information that the bank simply wants to know, actually, uh, if this is relevant or not is a different question. So you have a massive amount of intermediaries actually trying to provide trust ultimately and kind of a security check for quite a simple actually function of checking the liquidity uh, and actually to pay the payback probability of this takeoff of the loan. Now, uh, comparing uh, the CFI space where you go to the bank, file in a majority of documents, pay a lot of fees to all of these intermediaries, looking at DeFi, you go to an anonymous platform, you give out your collateral, um, actually, you say how much you want to lend and without ever knowing the counterparty or specific manual reconsolidation or one centralized guy making the decision, depending if he's in a good or bad mood or wants to dig into this, this decision is made. And it's made standardized, it's made harmonized and transparent and with a, a rule set that is the same for everybody. Now, if this applies to each and every asset set in the next years, something I touch my views in a second, but we already see the impact on something like loans, an extremely lucrative business uh, for the traditional financial banks. Actually, for a majority uh, of the banks now, since they cut investment banking, one of the key revenue drivers taking tremendous fees on uh, all of these loans they get from central banks, this is, in my view, really getting dramatically disrupted. I use this word rarely, but in this case, it's true. And I see really this as a first application only of DeFi. DeFi here shows the beauty of DLT, in my view. And this is the settlement clearing and really taking out the middleman of these transactions. Um, and the underlying here is the crypto assets that are traded around and loans and interest given, but there are already the first use cases with ETFs on top of this. So there you actually don't need a bank uh, or BlackRock issuing the securities, but a standardized rule set 
with people acting on top of this. DeFi is not only limited then uh, to ETFs, something like derivatives where you have a manual process where if I talk to my institutional guys, it's frightening to see you still send facsimiles uh, and paper trails around to make trillion dollar deals across the counters. So also for this uh, a methodology in the end to bring tremendous efficiencies in middle back office settlement and clearing work. Um, I really think the main differentiation is a major automatization of middle and back office work, which also leads uh, actually to the differentiation and the obstacle to overcome this old structure. No middle and back office settlement person will push a DeFi application because it's a classical case. It will make the job obsolete. And in this value chain of DeFi, it's also questionable if you need this function ever again. So this bridge is being built and I think DeFi will have a much bigger impact on finance than cryptos and ICOs that uh, in the last five years. So obviously at, at the heart of this, this new possibility of DeFi are smart contracts, data, and as, as you kind of touched upon earlier and as the name of your company, Dear Data, implies, you believe data and its quality is critical to a properly functioning DeFi system. You also referenced, or I referenced in the introduction, the role of oracles or the importance of oracles in that. Could you talk people through that value chain, the data, the input, the output, and the oracles and, and how that currently works? There are kind of a growing number of oracle providers at the moment. How would you, as a bank, an institutional organization, how would you procure these services, these technologies, and integrate them into your, you know, your, your value chain, your supply chain? So with DIA, the mission is really to unlock data in the sense across a broad value chain. Um, and the major really um, yeah, trigger for me to found this was this experience of this data being locked up as a metrical in very expensive silo systems. Um, and this is also something in my view that is getting partially repetitive in this DeFi space with the next data provider specifically for this space where people can trade up on. A DIA, um, yeah, to go back to the example of oracles, uses a completely open source methodology to source data. So going to the example of uh, a Bitcoin price, which was one of the first starting points, Bitcoin Oracle that we published. Uh, the major question is here also, which sources do you take into account? Which trades do you potentially see as market manipulation or wash trading? Should you include them? Should you not include them? And um, which actually, yeah, standardized cleaning do you do on the data sets to then create this output? Which exchanges do you take into account to calculate this Bitcoin price? And then also looking besides of live calculations, was there anything actually changed within the sources within each and every of the data sets that led to this calculation? Uh, some of the major examples in the crypto space uh, are quite yeah, known. Now, each and every of these decisions isn't one where we say we know the ultimate truth. 
which exchanges to source, which uh, outliers to clean, which statistical algos to put on top. But what we say with DA data is we give you the maximum transparency on each and every of these decisions. And each and every of these decisions is hashed and stored in the blockchain. And what this then creates is, in our view, a perfect open source answer to the question, how did you come up with this number? but also a tool for the community to create their own oracles and data sources on top of this methodology. This space um, is luckily getting more and more traction of oracles because, as I mentioned before, also with, for example, EU benchmark regulations, the more and more assets are in a space, the more and more parallel data sources you should actually have for your products on top of this. Uh, Chainlink and Band are building some amazing products in the space. Uh, there are other players also popping up for this. I think where we put a particular focus is really transparency across this chain and also then a really open source model to integrate this into other Oracle solutions. So we are not exclusive in using our Oracle suite, but the aim is really to use this as a primary, secondary, or even safety trigger for existing oracles. And a specific value prop, yeah, really on the transparency angle and the community angle on this. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting you referenced earlier the problems that, that have been around Bitcoin ETFs in the US. And the reasons I've heard regularly cited are because at the moment, the regulators just don't trust the data associated with Bitcoin and uh, any manipulation that might be happening and at least their perspective or attitude on exchanges is that is the primary source of a lot of that data. So I can, yeah, I think the, the argumentation for having greater, more trustful data sources, more verifiable uh, data sources is, is, is very strong. So, I mean, you've alluded to some of the differences and approaches of, of DIA, but maybe to just be a bit more specific. So you talk about the crowd a lot. Can you talk about exactly how you unlock the wisdom or the power of the crowd and what are the kind of benefits that come out of that and potentially also challenges like what you know what's what's different and how are you scaling that? So the crowd for me it's the key driver for our product. Uh, the crowd is in the end what is looking at this data, what is scrutinizing this data, but what is also telling us actually as a company what they need in terms of data in order to improve the product and make it usable. In our case, really think about the crowd like Wikipedia editors, but think about each and every of these edits actually also stored on a blockchain. So you have a perfect trail actually of who criticized, uh, edited, uh, or manipulated what. This is kind of the core of it. And to expand on this a bit, we um, operate within our product, also a token model for disputing, uh, for staking, uh, but also to incentivize uh, specific data generation. For this, again, this token that has governance function is a key, actually, role for us, really, um, critically integrated into product. And now, um, very specifically, with taking actually our product as well as our token, you could go, you can go to our uh, platform, request any kind of financial data set from real estate pricings to corporate bond pricing. 
developers actually can use this token and our methodology to criticize what came out of this data request. So let's say uh, this real estate prices are actually faulty or from the last year, uh, use our token to dispute against this. Then again, also using this token via actually arbitrary delegation for dispute handling. So if there's a public dispute that not the guy with the most votes or actually the biggest streaming mechanisms uh, actually receives the consensus and gets the vote, but something that really actually fosters a broader feedback loop. And this is also the major challenge. What we are actually trying or building here is something that is bridging this normal crowd curation like you have it in Wikipedia based major, for the majority on a centralized reputation model with something that is dramatically decentralized and where you really give this ultimate decision what is the wisdom and the outcome for something like a financial data point to a bigger audience. But this is something I really believe in because looking at how this is done at Bloomberg or Refinitiv, these are only interns sitting there using public data and then massively actually uh, yeah, monetizing this data on top to sell this off. I think if I look at the DeFi space, there are brilliant quants, mathematicians that would never end up in this traditional financial space, but would also never buy a Bloomberg terminal for $2,500. And DIA really aims to be this tool like you have a broad access to knowledge nowadays on Wikipedia. If you want to look up pretty much every fact of the world, you will find it there due to the crowd curation. And our mission is really to achieve exactly the same for financial data with a very specific auditability and compliance angle. So this isn't conceptual. So this is working now as a live token. Could you talk through uh, the level of utilization? You know, how many, would you call them analysts that are in the network, the kind of functions that they're carrying out? Can you give us a sense of scale? Yeah. So I would say we are still in early adoption. We have around 80 constant developers in this crowd. It always depends a bit actually on the complexity of data. But what we saw in the last years, and as you say, this product is fully working, developed with live products you can check out on our open source GitHub uh, and Gitcoin platform, is a constant uptick in developer activity. I think this is also because we put a core focus on feedback and interaction with this early adoption crowd, but around 80 constant developers, if we have very standardized data sets, for example, lastly, we scraped the ECB for uh, FX rate data, enormously standardized uh, API feed that even I probably could uh, write a scraper at with some effort. Uh, there are around uh, 100 to 200 actually then commits also on this. And it's an open model, so everybody can contribute for this. It's not like that the early adopters have some special standing and newcomers can't actually contribute in there. In terms of the data sets, um, this is growing also on a constant basis. And it's good to see also that slowly this is really uh, growing organically uh, quite nicely. So more and more data requests are coming in, more and more developers are working on this. We now have all of the pretty much crypto exchanges as well as pair scrapes. This goes to 10,000 plus currency pairs from all of the 500 exchanges. 
you can actually find uh, on CoinMarketCap. Uh, this also goes into all of the fundamentals, so token classification, token taxonomy, uh, coming out of uh, yeah this cooperation we have with more academic and uh, compliant institutions, and lately a particular focus on really bringing transparency to the DeFi data sets with yield, interest rates, and also security features, because one of the key questions coming in there again, what the crowd also finds interesting, is looking really at key risks. So all of these assets that are flowing into this lending protocols, you also need to mitigate that some day one admin key has access to all of these assets and pulls them off. So it's growing. It's not a Bloomberg analyst stuff with 10,000 plus, obviously, but that's not the goal. And the good thing is to see we get constant feedback um, as well as constant new data requests on this. So where does all this go? The most immediate thing to me feels like this could enable indices. And I know you're looking at a, a DeFi indices, a DeFi index at the moment. How far away are we from seeing kind of crypto assets or, or DeFi indices being used by institutional investors and mainstream? I think very soon. So the interest in DeFi has not lot, uh, let institutional players untouched, not in Switzerland, not in Germany, um, not in the UK. The uptick in interest also to allocate this money is actually into DeFi has also just, in my view, actually found the first few early adopters really in the traditional space. But then again, this is really only the first tipping point of bringing more and more assets from this traditional space into digital assets. And I'm specifically saying digital because this won't be only crypto assets, in my view, in the long term. The biggest chunk of assets under management are still in the equity bond as well as derivative markets. And it's very good to see that DeFi actually is implementing this fundamental bridge. It's actually building this first bridges for derivatives, for lendings to actually pull more and more money out of the fiat ecosystem in the end into the digital assets slash crypto ecosystem. And also, the more and more this transitions happens, um, this might even also be through the funnel of a central bank digital currency, which could be an enormous actually benefit for DeFi because then you could find actually a bridge to a normal fiat payment and settlement bridge. So also not this volatility and this hassle of only using crypto assets as a payment in and outwards of this funnel uh, with a massive potential. And all of these elements are now coming together from a regulatory side with central bank digital currencies really going into live first MVPs, uh, even in Switzerland, to actually massive interest from the investor side who also want to be part of this DeFi hype, I would say, but in a regulated way, in a way that they understand and can put into their normal bank accounts. And with the first major uptake, really, where this will go in the long term, and this is radically changing the way how derivative and more complex financial instruments are actually structured and also dealt. Uh, to go also into this again, if you have stuff like convertibles, contingency convertibles, or even more complex uh, certificate structures in the traditional financial space. You have massive amounts thrown at this 
to structure these barriers, look at data triggers, and throw enormous amounts of uh, money on audit companies, controlling companies. All of these processes from certificates to derivatives are slowly getting actually built into DeFi. And yeah, to, uh, this is the tipping point in my view for really broad DLT application in also the traditional institutional space. Great. Look, Michael, it's been fascinating talking to you as ever. Hopefully I get to meet you in a karaoke bar soon somewhere in the world uh, to see your uh, fantastic dance. Good luck with everything that's going on with the token. I know you've begun experimenting. Well, you've kind of rolled out Gnosis bonding curve, and I believe that you're open sourcing a lot of the stuff associated with that. Um, So good luck with all of that. And uh, yeah, looking forward to singing with you somewhere in a bar soon. Thanks a lot for having me here and follow us on DIA. I can say we keep everything open source. Um, Keep track of us. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please make sure you subscribe, rate and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of Web3.